0: Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Koolabar Capital.
1: And Yingers is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Koolabar Capital.
0: Chris, can you tell us what happened in markets and our portfolios during the month of July?
1: Yeah, sure, Yingers. July was another really interesting and, for us, very positive month. Uh, We saw the indexes all perform relatively well. So the equity market was up, I believe, 95 or 96 basis points in the month. We had the cash rate only delivering two basis points of return in July. So that's the RBA cash rate. Bank bills, unfortunately, only paid you about 0.01% or one basis point of return in July The Composite Bond Index returned 37 basis points, which is pretty good, given how low the underlying yields are in that index. The standout in July was the Investment Grade Floating Rate note Index, which returned 42 basis points. Uh, Across our portfolios, our long short credit fund net of fees was up over 102 basis points in the month, which was great. Pre-fees, 136 basis points. Our active composite bond strategy also had a very strong month. We we're up 105 basis points gross pre-feeds. That's a product that is only available currently to institutional investors. And that 105 basis points compares to the index return of 37 basis points. Over the last 12 months, our active composite bond strategy, which ranks number one or two in Mercer's universe, over the last uh, one, two, three years, it has returned in the 12 months to 31 July, 5.75% gross versus the index's 3.58%. So it's beaten the index by 216 basis points. We also run another Insta-only longshore credit strategy, which did 98 basis points gross in July. And then our two cash plus products, Smart Money Higher Income and the Smart Money Active Cash Strategy, they did pre fees about 60 to 61 basis points in the month of July. So, well ahead of the flooding rate note index, is 42 basis points. And also, obviously, well ahead of the cash rate, two basis points. Net of fees, they both did 45 basis points, still beating the FRN index. Notwithstanding, they ended the month with a lot of cash. So I think our cash weight in Smart Money ATF cash was coming up towards 40%, and in the Smart Money Higher Income strategy, our cash weight, uh, I believe, was around 30%. HBRD, the active ETF that invests across the capital structure in hybrid subordinate bonds, sending bonds, and cash, which is listed on the ASX under the ticker HBRD. We run this for our beta shares. That also had a solid month with a 34 basis point net return. Now, the hybrid market in July did almost identically to HBRD. 34 basis points for hybrids is not a massive return, but obviously pretty good for the month given TD rates are below 1%. The headwinds for the hybrid market in July were really around the $600 million issue of NAB's landmark over-the-counter hybrid, which we were the cornerstone investor in. So we were a significant investor in that transaction. It priced on a 400 basis point margin or credit spread above the bank bill swap rate. At the time, the ASX hybrid curve for five year major bank hybrids was at about 350 basis points. So we picked up a 50 basis point per annum credit spread concession, which was very attractive. And that's performed brilliantly in the period since, in fact, it significantly outperformed the ASX hybrid market in July with its spread compressing down from 400 to about 372. So we're quite pleased with the performance of that product. In the month of July, we're also just generally very active. Uh, we bought and sold $2.35 billion of cash credit. So this is basically bonds, you know, ranging from semi government bonds, bank bonds, hybrids, and other securities. We actually bought in the month only $856 million. So we sold gross $1.49 billion in July. And that meant we took profits through selling net $636 million in the month. In the year to date, so the first seven to eight months of 2020, we have bought and sold well north of $11 billion of bonds. We've been very active and we've executed over 10,000 purchases and sales. Our biggest net purchase month was obviously in the month of March. We had tremendous liquidity in March, buying and selling uh, over a billion dollars of bonds in the month, but net purchases of about $900 million. And since that time, we've been a net seller over April, May, June, and July, taking profits on a lot of those uh, positions that we had picked up when credit spreads exploded in July. In July, we saw continued mean reversion very strong performance from major bank senior bonds which we continue to take profits on we saw the credit spread on five-year major bank senior bonds compressed down to about 44 basis points over the bank bill swap rate and we had actually said i think to listeners and certainly to our investors in march and april that we had targeted five-year major bank senior bond spreads going to 50 basis points so we've actually moved through that target Back in March, I think we bought some at 170 basis points over bank bills. So tremendous performance from that asset. 44 basis points is a record in the post-GFC period. Previous record tight for major bank senior spreads at the 5-year 10 had been 60 basis points. Pre-GFC, they got to as tight as 10 basis points. However, the banks are borrowing off the RBA at a cost of 25 basis points for three-year money. So we uh, would not expect to see much more major bank senior performance. So we've actually sold all of our major bank senior, about $2.25 billion since the end of March, and gone to cash or other assets that are more attractive. And in terms of what we continue to target and like, you know, the two standouts are T2 bonds and still ASX hybrids. We think five-year major bank T2 bonds can see their spreads compress to inside 150 basis points. They got out to 400 in March. Right now they're about 183, and we expect the ASX major bank five-year hybrid curve to also continue to compress got out to 8.41 in March, we argued at the time quite vocally that that was a tremendous buying opportunity. And we've seen those spreads compress to about 321 basis points right now. And we expect them to test the post-GFC tights around 240 basis points. So I guess one final point on July would be that we're also active in a multiplicity of currencies. So we're trading credit in Aussie dollars, US dollars and Euros in the month.
0: Chris, I wanna chat about generating alpha from trading beta. Now, a reasonable proposition might be to suggest that in the modern history of humanity, asset prices have never been more distorted or removed from fundamental assessments of fair value. It should be now well understood that we have shifted quite radically from the freely functioning markets that characterise the proliferation of open democracies and capitalism in the period after the Second World War to a radical new regime. That is, one defined by policymakers' realisation that when market signals do not suit them, or more particularly convey very bad news about the economy, they will manipulate those markets until they get the outcomes they desire. They can do so because of the monopoly central banks have over the creation of money. With the ability to manufacture unlimited quantities of money, central banks have become understandably enamoured with their ability to manage all asset prices, ranging from government bonds to equities and property through direct purchases of whatever investments they want to directly exercise influence over to both boost their prices and indirectly impact others. As just one example, the US Federal Reserve is buying government bonds, residential mortgage-backed securities, corporate bonds, and high-yield or junk securities in the new-issue market in the secondary domain and through exchange-traded funds, so ETFs. The next cab off the rank would be if the Fed started buying equities, which is not as far-fetched as it might seem. It's much more disciplined Antipodean cousin, the RBA, has limited itself to buying federal and state government bonds, which we call for in May last year.
1: Yeah, Ying, as I agree that capitalism seemingly cannibalising itself via embracing central planning uh, is indeed profoundly ironic in the face of the new Cold War between China and the West over the future of the world. The differences between the two socioeconomic systems are not nearly as great as they were before the advent of extreme market manipulation as a result of the 2008 shock Having said that, in policymakers' defence, the great virus crisis of 2020 was absolutely a picture-perfect case study for the use of these interventions in the short term. The risk, of course, is that they're never withdrawn. With the explosion of government bond issuance required to fund ballooning fiscal deficits, central banks will have no choice but to keep a lid on public borrowing costs through ongoing long-term purchases of these assets, which is obviously also known as QE or quantitative easing. The alternative would be an explosion in government bond yields or long-term interest rates, which would blow up all asset classes by forcing them to clear at truly unfettered prices that are miles below current levels. Don't you think, Eunice?
0: Yes, Chris. I mean, all of this begs the question, do you want a lot of passive exposure to manipulated asset prices in your portfolios? It certainly raises an interesting challenge for the efficient markets hypothesis that forms the basis of so much passive or indexed investing today. How can markets be efficient or the most accurate available signals of the true value of an investment when prices are being set by unelected bureaucrats who are unilaterally deciding where they want bond yields and equity valuations to trade? The corollary of the unprecedented global manipulation of asset prices is that markets have never been more inefficient, as judged by the distance between present prices and the intrinsic valuations that would otherwise prevail under a freely functioning regime, mostly removed from central bank influence.
1: I don't disagree, Yingers, and um, don't get me wrong. Markets are extremely efficient at pricing in this market manipulation and the vagaries of central bank decisioning in real time. But they're not doing the job that they were designed to do, which is to optimally allocate scarce human and capital resources to their best use through ruthlessly accurate price signals. So this begs the question, do you want passive market beta as opposed to alpha in your portfolio if it is a means for actively exploiting opportunities associated with central bank interference? It was pretty obvious that the extreme QE in March was going to crush the cost of capital and drive up the value of beta globally. If you understood this, you absolutely wanted to aggressively load up on liquid beta to capitalize on the profound price appreciation that would inevitably follow. Another corollary is that with central banks controlling markets, beta may not behave like you expect it to. With arguably the biggest demand shock since the Great Depression hitting the global economy in the first few quarters of 2020, many investors expressed utter disbelief about the subsequent equities rally. And I heard this a lot from hedge fund guys who were short in March. Yet on a purely fundamentals basis, the sharp increase in shares obviously didn't make sense to these folks. But if you then overlay central bank control of asset prices through the unrestricted QE that we actually called for in late February, it was much easier to understand. Put another way, it was rational to actually think about seemingly irrational price action as a result of this extreme central bank interference. Perhaps the biggest lesson for me is, is that you cannot set and forget in portfolio construction when markets are more inefficient in respect to fundamental valuations than they arguably have ever been before.
0: And Chris, I agree. You want to try to exploit these inefficiencies, which are a tremendous opportunity in addition to being a portfolio threat day in, day out. The former CIO of WorkCover, Jerome Lander, now runs a diversified multi-asset class portfolio that only uses active managers. Lander says that the world is changing rapidly and drastically, and if you're investing in a strategy that hardly ever changes its positioning, you're going to suffer. And he highlights others who have employed avowedly active approaches with similar success. He says, quote, Look at the top performing super fund in Australia in the diversified fixed income category, Catholic Super. It has beaten the second best peer by 100 basis points per annum and smashed its benchmark over the last three years through only using very active fixed income managers. This is not to say that holding passive beta in any way is a bad thing. As noted earlier, if you can predict policymakers' behaviors, you can actively leverage that beta to your benefit at different points in the cycle. There is therefore a valuable role for those beta building blocks, but not necessarily for reasons that are most commonly imputed to them. Now, Chris, why do you think markets are ignoring Victoria's massive second wave? Can you explain to listeners how we have been thinking through this surprise?
1: Yeah, sure, Yingers. It now appears that Victoria's tragic second wave peaked around July 31st. In early July, we started applying our internal and proprietary forecasting systems to Australia's first episode of pervasive community transmission to understand when the peak might materialise. This was going to be a potentially important input for portfolio construction, and we saw one month later, the credit rating agency, Standard & Poor's, put Victoria's prized AAA credit rating on negative watch for a 50% probability of a short-term downgrade. Our systems have performed really well in February and March, projecting the otherwise surprising early April 2020 peak of the first waves of COVID-19 in Australia, Western Europe and the US. They did not, however, of course, anticipate Victoria's second wave, which was a shock to everyone and has since proven to be a regrettable artefact of sustained policymaking errors made by the Victorian government. Looking back on our data, it was apparent that Victoria's per capita COVID-19 testing performance between March and May was materially inferior to both the Australian average and the numbers posted in New South Wales and Queensland. Indeed, the cumulative Victorian infection curve never actually flattened between March and May. Rather, it kept creeping higher in contrast to every other state and territory. With the benefit of hindsight, it did look like something was going systematically wrong. We now know that there was a sequence of policy snafus that led to this disaster. And the latest reports that Victoria still only has half the number of contact traces as New South Wales only amplifies our disbelief. So our forecasting models statistically identify the current pulse of the virus in the target country or region, and they then predict its future course based on previously observed experiences or transmission trajectories in countries that have already endured a first wave and thereafter contained the pathogen. The efficacy of these forecasts depends on the assumptions our analysts make on the countries that are most likely to provide guidance on the future infection trajectory in the target jurisdiction. Our system allows one to select a single Country as the future benchmark for the forecast, or we can use a multiplicity of blended regions. It also allows the analysts to apply assumptions about the containment efficacies of the policymakers in the target country uh, relative to the performance of policymakers in the benchmark nations. In the case of Victoria, we publicly presented 14 different possible paths in early July that pointed to a peak sometime between July 13 and July 26. Yet every single one of the forecasts that benchmarked off Italy, South Korea, Germany, the UK and France, and there were 10 in total, pointed to a late July peak between July 22nd and July 26th. By far the most predictions fingered July 26th, specifically seven of the 14 forecasts that we presented. The small minority of more optimistic scenarios that anticipated a peak prior to July 20 were predicated on the past experience of Australia, which had never had pervasive community transmission, and China, where the data itself is obviously questionable. The late July estimates now appear to have been actually quite close to the ultimate peak, which our systems currently suggest was July 31st. While we did not need to publish this research publicly my preference is to try and do so more often than not to foster education and debate even if it does tend to open ourselves to vitriolic online attacks from anonymous trolls it's kind of like writing my column for the AFR each week and presenting our views and opinions and our analysis and projections in black and white in a manner that's on the record and open for anyone to judge It would be a hell of a lot easier not publicly engaging in these intellectual battles, frankly speaking.
0: Well, Chris, as it has transpired, markets have been less focused on second waves and more smitten with central bank asset purchases and the prospect of effective vaccines. Our Prime Minister ScoMo has revealed he has negotiated 25 million vaccine doses with AstraZeneca, with production slated to begin locally this year. While securing an effective vaccine in 2020 has been our heterodox central case, and the portents do appear promising, we await the results of the final phase three Moderna trials and the Oxford trials. The key outstanding questions revolve around safety, efficacy, and longevity. With the central banks directly or indirectly funding so many businesses, the supply of new bond deals has been scarce in Australia outside of government issuers. And this has been especially true in respect of so-called T2 or subordinated bond deals that typically carry juicier credit spreads. A credit spread denotes the extra interest rate a company pays to borrow money from investors above a proxy for the cash rate called the bank bill swap rate. Late August saw a welcome return of T2 supply with three local transactions from IAG, QBE and ANZ and a NAB issue in the U.S., There were also senior bonds offered by Goodman and Coles, which both ripped tighter in credit spread terms, i.e. higher in price, in subsequent secondary market trading. The Coles senior issue was a stonker, with the 10-year security tightening in credit spread terms by as much as 11 basis points in an hour after the deal closed, or higher in price by about 100 basis points. ANZ's Aussie dollar sustainable tier two issue, priced on a spread of 185 basis points, which was almost bang on the secondary curve. It would have been preferable to have seen a five basis point concession, i.e. pricing at say 190 basis points, given tier two spreads have compressed dramatically since their record March blowout as a result of aggressive contrarian buying in the period since. We have no doubt that ANZ's treasurer Adrian Wendt has generously thanked these heterodox investors for the attractive cost of capital they bequeathed on him in this latest T2 trade, which is 215 basis points cheaper for ANZ than it would have been in March. We bought the Coles, IAG and ANZ issues. In euros, we also purchased a decent chunk of another sustainable or ESG bond that had been issued by ANZ in late 2019 on spread today that were more than 30 basis points wide of the Aussie dollar curve after hedging back to the local currency. The seller was presumably a cornerstone investor in that ANZ sustainable deal that for some reason decided to crystallize their losses. The ASX hybrid market continues to perform with the five-year spread on major bank hybrids contracting further to about 315 basis points, which is still materially wide of the 260 basis points observed last year and the post-GFC tights around 235 basis points. This contrasts conspicuously with the major bank's senior bond markets, where the five-year has shrunk to just 50 basis points inside previous post-GFC records. When it comes to new bond deals, we encourage companies to be long-term greedy, especially when money is cheap as it is right now. Look after your creditors with a decent new issue concession during the good times and the smart ones will reciprocate with support during the tough times. We look dimly on issuers that display myopic, zero-sum behaviors that seek to transfer the maximum possible value from creditors in every single trade. For example, we cannot stand it when a company launches a bond issue but refuses to tell us how much they wanna borrow. How on earth can we price the fair interest rate if we don't know the quantum of money that they want to borrow? Imagine going to your bank and asking them to lend money at a certain interest rate but refusing to tell them how much you want to borrow. They wouldn't have a bar of it. Now Chris, almost every day we are asked about the outlook for the future. And that question is hard to answer because our portfolios are focused on getting the here and now. It is statistically easier to forecast the short term than the long term, despite the large number of people who claim otherwise.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, Ying Yang-Ching. The intellectual conflict when thinking about the future is that we have been very positive on mean reversion in high-grade financial credit spreads since early March. At the same time, we are anxious about the medium term outlook and relations between China and the West in particular. We're also deeply concerned, as you know, about the current QE to infinity paradigm and how it's going to end. That is, the consequences of the displacement of capitalism with this new form of statism that seeks to artificially manipulate markets. It is hard to avoid the conclusion that some type of major power conflict is a real possibility, coupled with the likelihood of rising consumer price inflation if nation states continue to debase the value of fair money by printing endless amounts of it in order to monetize and hence service their debts. Overlay horrible global pandemics and it is easy to get very negative about the world. Synthesizing this analysis and one's vision of a rich range of potentially incongruent futures is frankly the plight of the investor trader. And for definitional purposes here, I will digress momentarily to highlight the false dichotomy between a so-called trader and an investor, which we've belabored previously. Both are trying to figure out where the true fair value of an asset lies. Both the investor and the trader want to buy cheap assets that will provide capital gains as the asset's price converges to fair value. The so-called trader normally seeks to do this over shorter time intervals, spreading capital over many more bets. The so-called investor often waxes lyrical about longer three, five, and 10-year horizons. They make bets less frequently and hold more concentrated portfolios. As volatility and uncertainty grow dramatically as a function of time, a short-term trader endowed with equal skill to a long-term investor should have a higher probability of forecasting success. This arguably explains the striking differences in the risk and return outcomes delivered by, for example, renaissance technologies as compared with uh, the investment legend Warren Buffett over the past 30 years. And I've written several AFR columns on this, so if you Google Christopher Joy AFR, renaissance and Buffett, you can pull those articles up.
0: With that being said, we have always been pretty comfortable explaining our view of the world through actions rather than words. While we are holding more cash than we have for some time, we're still long assets that appear to have a lot of mean reversion left in them. For all the talk about illiquidity and credit, it is a much misunderstood concept. If you held high-grade assets issued by unquestionably strong entities, there was always a bid in size in March. If, on the other hand, you held lower-grade assets issued by companies that perform badly in recessions, Think retailers, commercial property trusts, unregulated lenders, airlines, etc. Well, most folks would not touch them with a 40-foot cattle prod precisely because they are so cyclical. In addition to being illiquid, many of these assets have suffered credit rating downgrades, defaults, or extreme stress where the bond issuer might not be in technical default but requires forbearance from their lender in the form of a restructuring, for example, shifting to interest-only payments, partial interest repayments, a repayment holiday, and or a longer loan term. Liquidity is a nebulous concept. It can mean many different things to different people, including the volume bought and sold, the depth on the bid or offer, the market impact costs you incur when transacting, and so on. One of the most interesting facets of liquidity is that it can be one-sided in markets dominated by a lot of groupthink. In March, for example, the herd was rushing for the exits, desperately trying to sell. If you were the bid in this environment, you had almost infinite liquidity. While we net bought $937 million on a gross basis before netting sales, we actually bought over 1.5 billion billion in this crisis. In contrast, if you were the offer, it could be hard to get the bid you needed. Market impact costs were excruciating. And in some assets like lower grade corporate bonds, there simply was no bid. The converse is true today. Since the 31st of March, we have gross sold $3.9 billion, i.e. after netting purchases that falls to about $1.2 billion. During this time, the bid has felt infinitely deep because the herd has been rushing to buy back whatever they sold in February and March. There has also been a fear of missing out dynamic as the mother of all mean reversion trades played out.
1: Yes, well put, Yingers. And so while the life of an investor or trader can be stimulating, it is also actually very stressful, practically speaking. The active investor is effectively betting that the collective wisdom of the crowd is mispricing an asset, which is a bold assessment that cannot be made lightly. If you disrespect the market, it will beat humility into you mercilessly, and your wins and losses are judged harshly. Simply put, you either make good money or you don't. It's very easy to aggressively express an unaccountable opinion online or in a newspaper column. It's quite another thing to invest billions of dollars into your views on the presumption that the masses may be getting it slightly wrong over a very specific time interval and then live or die by those decisions. I think it definitely helps you that we're part of a close-knit team. We have 23 executives in our team, 11 analysts, 5 portfolio managers, 4 of those guys have PhDs and going into a zero-sum battle each day against such a ruthless and formidable adversary as the global financial market creates a unique, almost familial bond through the searing intensity of the experience. Don't you think, Ingrid?
0: Yes, definitely, Chris. I have found it incredibly stimulating having transitioned from the sell side onto the buy side, i.e. the investment funds management industry. And that's a wrap, guys. We hope you have a lovely week ahead. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.